It's been a while, but uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Pick up where we left off about three weeks ago before uh, uh, the holiday and all. We looked at the first seven verses the last time around, and uh, we saw that Paul has returned to Ephesus. It's a large city on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey uh, in uh, area that we call Asia Minor, which means Little Asia. It's not the Asia continent that we see in on our maps today, but it was a small, and I'll show you a map in a little bit, uh, small province, smaller. It was a huge area, but it was a smaller province in the whole continent. So he's gone back, traveled across, gone to the area that the Holy Spirit had prevented him from going to on his previous journey. And now the door was open and he comes back, he returns. Uh, He was only there for a short time because he had to return to Judea. He was on his way back to the feast, probably the feast of Passover because, not just because of the feast, but remember in Sancria, as he left Corinth, he went to Sancria and there he had his hair cut. He had probably taken the vow of a Nazarite and that meant that he had 30 days to get back to Jerusalem to be able to offer a box of hair, I guess, (laughs) <laughs> at the temple as part of the temple rites and part of the, the rites in fulfilling that vow. So so he was in a hurry. So now on his third journey, uh, when he arrived at Ephesus, Paul came across this, he came across a group of 12 guys and he asked if they had received the Holy Spirit when they had believed. And they replied, essentially, what's, what's a Holy Spirit? <laughs> They'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so... That made Paul curious, and so he asked him what kind of what what was the baptism with which they were baptized. In other words, all right, if you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, then what's the mechanism through which you're standing here telling me that you are believers? And they replied uh, again. Their response was telling. They said that they'd only uh, were familiar with the baptism of John, John the Baptist, and so. They had a knowledge of God, a knowledge of Messiah, but it wasn't a full knowledge. So Paul goes on to explain to them the difference between the baptism of John, which is a repentance with expectation, because John's baptism looked forward to the one that would come after him, and the baptism uh, that Christians receive, which is a baptism of repentance and fulfillment, the, the fulfillment being that Jesus is, was, and is the Messiah, and so on. And so at that moment, uh, he baptizes these guys, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're baptized in the Spirit right on the spot. And they began to speak in tongues and uh, to prophesy and to manifest the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, but... Going back to looking at when Paul had been there on his second trip, uh, he had gone to the synagogue and he found favor with the men at the synagogue, which was a little unusual because usually when he showed up at the synagogue, <laughs> trouble started and he got the boot or he got beat up or he got you know, in Corinth. They stood literally formed a line and stood against him. But here they said, you know, we want to hear more and could you stick around, Paul? And and he said, no, I've got to go. I've got to go to this feast uh, in Judea. But he shared with them at that time uh, that whether or not he would return would be God willing. It was in the Lord's hands. 
So now as we dive into this morning's text, we're going to see Paul having returned to Ephesus that God was indeed willing, uh, and he heads to the synagogue once more. So we'll pick it up in verse 8. It says, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Now, evidently, Paul initially, as I mentioned, he had favor with at the synagogue in Ephesus, uh, and they apparently allowed him to preach and to teach, to reason with them for many Sabbaths. I mean, for three months, that's, that's a lot of Shabbats. <laughs> and so they were taking it in. Something I think that is interesting here in verse 8 says that he spoke boldly. Uh, and in this context, we're seeing spiritual boldness. And that is a thing. Pray for spiritual boldness. Uh, it's a byproduct of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So just an example, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they'd been taken into custody because they were out there preaching in the temple precincts, remember, and and, and the religious leaders didn't like that at all. And so they were taught, brought into custody. And then as they were being released, they were forbidden. Now you can't go share. Don't you tell people about this Jesus and all of that. And, and you know, Peter's response was, well, so, okay, who are we going to believe or who are we going to obey, you or God? And so... uh after they're released, they're praying with their companions. In Acts chapter 4, verse 29, uh, they're praying for boldness. He says, now, Lord, look on their threats. Don't, don't you be doing this. <laughs> and, and grant that your servants with all boldness may speak your word uh, by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. In verse 31 of Acts chapter 4, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, for they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Uh, outwardly, spiritual boldness, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I pray for boldness because, believe it or not, I'm pretty introverted in my own... I know, it sounds like, no, I am, I, I, I'm, I'm very quiet, very kind of subdued, and, and my wife is she's kind of nudging me sometimes, you need to be more bold. Okay, so it, it's true, and I pray for that. But spiritual boldness, it, it can look opinionated, it can look extroverted, when in fact, uh, that bold person may be the opposite, might even feel really <laughs> intimidated, uh, have trepidation about speaking forth when the Holy Spirit prompts. And that's what manifests as a spiritual boldness. Now, and it comes when the Holy Spirit compels a person to speak the truth in love, uh, even when it may not be welcomed. I remember, <laughs> speaking of spiritual boldness, uh, some of you were here when we had uh, a guy from uh, Kenya, East Africa, the East African Presbytery, guy that's planted 130 churches now, Morris Oganga. And he came, uh, this is back, I think it was two buildings ago. Uh, that's how I mark time. <laughs> anyway, he, he came when we were down on Elliott and, and I asked him if he would speak to the church when he was here in the States, he and his wife, uh, Ida. And, and uh, so anyway, he was very quiet and very subdued and, and very 
soft-spoken and polite and, and a wonderful man, wonderful brother. My wife and I had opportunity to have a couple of meals with he and his wife and all. But the minute he got in the pulpit, oh my goodness. And he was like, yeah, you don't have to you know, and he was just driving it home. And I thought, this guy is awesome. I love the way, but it was just such a change because he was being gifted with boldness. Um, <laughs> now, on the other hand, worldly boldness looks different. And, and I just want to bring this out. We'll talk about it more later. But that's when somebody can kind of get up in your face and be pushy or, or confrontational or or just... It's kind of the difference between, wow, that person's bold or, oh, that person's bold. You know, there's a difference. And... Uh, that's when, you know, you, you see like in the movies or maybe in real life, I don't know about your experience, where somebody will go, oh, yeah, buddy, well, let me tell you, it, you know, that, and they're being bold, but they're being kind of a jerk. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the same. It's boldness, but it's boldness that's energized and, and is part of our flesh, is part of operating from our lower nature. That's not what we're looking at here. Verse 9. But when some were hardened, this is now Paul in the, in the synagogue, he's talking to the Jews and, and to the believing Gentiles, the God-fearers, we've talked about them a number of times. Uh, some of them were hardened, did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. They departed from, uh, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, and I have to confess, whenever I read Tyrannus, I think, did they have a dinosaur over the door? You know, because you hear about that whole thing. No, different, whole different deal. Uh, same root Greek word. But as I look at this, it reminds me of the old adage. Have you ever heard the adage, sit, soak, and sour? That, you know, we can sit. We can soak it in. We can come here on Sunday morning and take it all in. For a variety of reasons, we can fail to or outright refuse to apply God's word to our lives. Uh, that's sit, soak, and sour. It doesn't have any effect. Uh, and Jesus talks about this. He doesn't use that term, but he talks about it, the same principle in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. And actually, I look at that as the parable of the soils because there... Jesus talks about four conditions of the human heart represented by the four soil types that are there. Here's one of them. In Luke 8, 5, uh, Jesus says, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and it was trampled down and the birds of the air devoured it. Now he goes on and he, and we're not going to take the time to go into the other three, especially the, the fourth of, of these is, it talks about the, the seed falling on good soil on a heart that, that is willing to allow the seed to take root and to go deep. But what's happening here in the synagogue with these guys that are hardening up, uh, that seed is getting thrown out there. The seed is the word of God, and it's not, it's not going anywhere. So his disciples come and they question Jesus about what does it mean, and, and he explains, and in, in Luke eight twelve, which corresponds to the, the seeds being thrown on the wayside. He says, those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. That's what's going on here. These guys, they're hardening their hearts. 
They're refusing to believe. They're not allowing the seed to go deep. They're allowing the God of this world to just essentially steal the truth of God. And it, it just, and they're cooperating. <laughs> you know, I, I, you hear people say sometimes, well, the devil made me do it. No, you had to cooperate. You did have a say. You have a will. <laughs> so anyway, when he talks about here, he's talking, he says that, that they were speaking evil of the way. Uh, that's a term that was used for early Christians. Uh, now, it's a singular term and it's exclusive. When Jesus said, and, and it's derived partly from when Jesus made the claim about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, that's what they began to call the church because the church realized, understood there was a lot of different ways out there, but there was only one the way. There was only one way to God. And it wasn't through Judaism. It wasn't through Greek and Roman mythology and all of the pantheons of gods that they had and all of that. It was through Christ. And so uh, it, <laughs> I've had people, unbelievers sometimes have said to me, well, isn't that kind of narrow-minded? And my response every time will be, yes, it is. I didn't make it up. This is what Jesus said. There is one way, period. That's it. And you have to deal with God on that basis or you're not going to deal with God uh, in any way that's going to produce anything good in your life. So these guys did this publicly. They decided to take Jesus on and it said they spoke evil against the way in front of the multitude. In other words, they wanted to, they made sure there was a big crowd there before they decided to start causing a ruckus. Um, which, by the way, is a good example of the worldly boldness I was talking about just a minute ago. They're being bold, but they're not being wise. You know, and here's some free advice. <laughs> if you have a beef with somebody, go to them privately. If you have aught with your brother or your sister, leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled to him and then come and present your gift. In other words, there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. So the unbelieving folks at the synagogue stood against Paul. And I, I, I think about that. I read that. And I think big surprise there. It just took three months this time instead of, you know, a few hours or whatever it has been in previous times. Uh, so you got to, I also have to wonder too, <laughs> if Paul is thinking, here we go again. I mean, we saw that when he was in Corinth, he showed up in Corinth because of the repeated opposition he was getting. And, and I mean, serious opposition, beating him up, dragging him out of the city, leaving him for dead and chasing him down with mobs and, and all of the stuff that had gone on, that he showed up in Corinth fearful, full of fear and trembling. And, and man, I just determined to know nothing among you, for, among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So here's the Apostle Paul, and, and I've got to think that he's, he's just... <clears throat> yeah, I, I, you guys know if you're sending texts, it, it, this just occurred to me. There's emoticons, emoticons. This is where it's a little icon that shows emotion. And I, I think as Luke's writing this, he, he probably could have gotten away with putting you know, an eye roll emoticon right about here because it's like, seriously, we're going to do this again. 
This is the dance. This is what we do. We come, we share Christ. We, you know, bring the gospel. We share the, the words of life. They reason from the Old Testament, from the scriptures that they had, demonstrate over and over and over and over again that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And then they get mad. Like I said, I roll. So the thing that's interesting is about, about this is the apostle, he is, he is undeterred. He's not going to, we saw in chapter 18 that they actually, as I mentioned, they blocked access to the synagogue in Corinth. Uh, and what he, his response to that was, is, okay, I'll, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he moves next door to a, in a common wall between the synagogue and Justice's house. Remember, we saw that it's like, okay, well, we'll go to the synagogues. And he goes, pink, and he goes next door. So here, though, Paul evidently had found a building that was well-suited for his next endeavor, the school of Tyrannus. And this, by the way, is the first Christian Bible school that we know of. And he begins to set up shop there. Now, the word Tyrannus means, literally, it translates tyrant. (laughs) And all that we know, this is the only time that this word is used in the Bible. Uh, And all that we know about this guy Tyrannus is uh, about his name and about the association that he has with this lecture hall. And the school of Tyrannus was likely a lecture hall that would be used. And the Greeks were, they were good. They loved to get into postulate about all kinds of things. And so there would be lecture halls around. And similar to, you know, hey, let's go catch a movie. I mean, well, let's go down and see what they've got to say. So uh, he might have been a Greek lecturer himself, this guy Tyrannus, uh, and spoke regularly at this hall. Uh, he could have been the owner of the hall, or he could have been a donor from whom the hall was named. We don't know. But we do know that Paul set up shop, and he began to teach in this hall. Now, something interesting I came across, is there's a 5th century manuscript, which is not considered part of the canon of Scripture. I want to be clear on that. But it tells us that he, in, it expands on this verse. He reasoned daily uh, in the school of Tyrannus from the fifth hour until the tenth, which would be like from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, and that's not part of the Bible, but it's very likely that that was the case. The schedule might be accurate. Don't know. The heat uh, in the middle of a Mediterranean day, these guys, didn't, they didn't have swamp coolers. They didn't have a heat pump outside cooling the place off. It was hot. And so in the middle of the day, their custom was to take time off. Very much like in Spain to this day, there's a siesta time and it ranges from like 11 to 3. It's several hours and they close businesses down. And, and they take a siesta and, and that's, it's a thing. It's their culture is probably the only culture remaining that does that. Um, so it would be a time, a common time for rest and for study. Now, this is a practical thing as well, because Paul looking for space to park his, uh, his, himself and his students, <clears throat> he's, uh, he, we know that he worked. We know that he worked as a tent maker. And, and that he was probably freed up to work in the cool parts of the day in the morning and then late in the afternoon. And then 
as this hall would become available because they would be going on siesta, I'm just calling it that, that's not what they called it, but they would be closing down shop for the middle of the day and so that would make this building available. All of that speculation, but it kind of fits together as to why he would benefit from going to the school of Tyrannus. Now, uh, think about it too. Paul did this every day and we'll see in verse 10, he did it for two years. Now, that translates to hundreds, literally hundreds of hours of teaching. And not only that, hundreds of hours of teaching in the hottest part of the day. Um, when I was in Bible college, <laughs> we were at a place called Twin Peaks, and uh, it was way up in the mountains. They didn't have air conditioner because they didn't need it except for a few days a year. But oh, those few days a year, it got hot. <laughs> and, the teachers used to gripe. They would say, I do not want to take the class after lunch because after lunch, it's going to be the hottest part of the day and these guys all just ate and they're going to be sleeping. And you would sit and I would sit and I would watch in the lecture hall there. I would watch students one after the other just start dropping off. <laughs> and so this would be a task for Paul, but he was up for it and God opened a door for him to take the school on and he stepped through that door and he did it for two years. Now, as you can see on the map, Ephesus became, as I mentioned before, it became a hub for evangelizing Asia Minor, Little Asia. This is Little Asia here. And it's not little in the sense that uh, geographically, it, it covered about 290,000 square miles. I mean, this is a big area. It's just not as big as the whole continent of, area, uh, of Asia. Uh, and it would have been impossible, virtually impossible for Paul to evangelize this area by himself. However, by raising up and equipping and sending out Christians to do the work of the ministry, this seemingly monumental task was accomplished. He planted churches all over Asia. The seven churches from the book of Revelation, including also the, the church at Colossae, there were, and there were a number of other churches as well. Uh, probably ones that we're not even aware of. Uh, they evangelized this whole section of the continent. So interestingly, in his letter back to the church at Ephesus, 10 years later, uh, while in prison at Rome, Paul describes this work. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, that means building up, of the body of Christ. And the body of Christ was indeed built up during Paul's time at Ephesus. Uh, there was a huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and we'll see here as we go through the text that it, it, gets, it, it actually gains momentum as he goes. Verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And that's an interesting term so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. That is definitely unusual miracles. <laughs> Sounds like something you might see on television, but it, this is, I believe this actually happened. And God was doing something here because you've got to remember the Ephesians were a very highly spiritistic, very, <laughs> they were uh, extremely um, superstitious, and, and, and God is going to do some things. He's going to deal with their superstition and their spiritism directly through uh, the outcome of these miracles. So 
Uh, but he, it says that he was taking the handkerchief the, the, and, and the aprons, all of that. Uh, and and I, was I started laughing as I was preparing for this. I thought, okay, you know, I could pull an, uh, my handkerchief out of my pocket and I'd guarantee you <laughs> it wouldn't be a good thing. Number one. Number two, chances are really high that it's not going to, it's not going to cure what ails you. It, it's, this is something that God did at that time for a specific purpose. You can look at it as a one-off. <laughs> you see, well, I'll, I'm so tempted to rabbit trail right now, but I'm not going <laughs> to. We'll, we'll go further into it. Unusual miracles literally translates miracles uh, not of the ordinary kind. And I got to, again, I was just thinking about this, like, okay, what's an ordinary miracle? And then there's an extraordinary miracle. And then, so do we have, and, but Luke is wanting us to understand that God was doing something special. God was doing something unique. And these unique miracles had a purpose. And we'll see that as, as we develop the text as we go along here, because, because of the, spiritual decay of the people in Ephesus, he was going to accomplish some things through this. That And it actually, it gets, I don't like to laugh at people's calamity, but it gets a little bit hilarious as we go. <laughs> You'll understand what I mean in a minute. But so the handkerchiefs, by the way, is not the same thing as what, like we have a hanky, you know, for <laughs> you blow your nose. Uh, it was probably sweatbands. Uh, that Paul would wear during this time when he's wearing the same thing with the aprons. He, he would wear an apron and, and, and he would have sweatband on his head, which was very common. Again, no air conditioning in a hot climate. Mediterranean, Mediterranean climate is very warm. And uh, so they're taking these articles of clothing from Paul and just the possession of them was these people were being healed and demons being cast out and all of that. Something interesting about that and something I want you to understand is I want you to note who the miracle worker is. And we're told here uh, that God is working these miracles by the hands of Paul. Understand that. There is a clear distinction. Paul's not working miracles. God is working miracles. He's doing it by the hands of Paul. He's doing it through Paul's clothing. So think about it. I, I, I personally believe this because God wants our focus to be on the miracle worker, not on the miracle itself, not on the method, because he's using some weird methods here. And, and <laughs> he wants our focus to be upon God, not upon God's instrument. And, and folks, that's a real temptation because, you know, I don't know about you, but I, there's a part of me that's kind of like a magpie. If it's shiny, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, it's, what's the, the, the movie that was out there? It's just like, squirrel. It, it, because it's like, if it gets my attention, it's like, ooh. And there's kind of a wow factor. There would be a wow factor if somebody went and laid a handkerchief or, or a sweatband across somebody and then they got up and walked. I mean, this is very unusual. And the temptation would be to look at the method. But that's not the point. The point is to look at the miracle worker. Verse 13, 
And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. My immediate response is, Good luck with that. <laughs> it doesn't go well. So if it seems kind of lame to you that these guys are doing this now, they've turned it into an incantation. You know what that is? It's where he's like, ooh, abracadabra, you know, all of that. It's because it is. This is pretty lame. These guys are, (laughs) they're just operating because that's what they did in Ephesus. That's what they would do. They would cast spell. I mean, there's a lot of sorcery, a lot of witchcraft, a lot of spiritism going on in the, this Ephesus was known in the empire as being the heartland for spiritual practices. And I'm not talking about Christian practice. I'm talking about pagan ritualistic weird stuff. We'll look at that more next week when we look at the temple of Diana, which was there at Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, So, We've got these itinerant Jewish exorcists and and they start using this as though they could bottle it. Uh, It's it's strange. They're trying to reduce the miracles of God uh, that God is doing at the hands of Paul to a nifty little formula. (laughs) And again, our human tendency is to distill things down, make a formula out of them, and then, ah, we've got it now. Uh, thinking about Jesus, he rarely healed people the same way. Have you ever noticed that? There's a place in the Gospel of John where he he takes some mud and he or some dirt and and he puts it in his hand and he spits on it, which is not a very glamorous visual. But he spits on it and he takes this mud and he smears it smears it all over this blind guy's eyes, and he says. Go down and wash in the pool of Siloam and you'll receive your sight. Uh, (laughs) He never healed any other blind person that way. And he healed a lot of people. Think about it though. If that was the only way that Jesus healed blind people, we would have the first church of the holy mud spitters. We would. (laughs) That's what we would do. We would can it. We would bottle it. We would market it. We would know that this is the way that we do it around here. But again... Focus on the miracle worker, not upon the method. Similar situation in 1 Samuel 4, with a couple of guys named Hophni and Phinehas. You may have read about them, the sons of Eli. Eli was the high priest in charge of the tabernacle up there at Shiloh. And Hophni and Phinehas, they were some wicked guys. They were godless. And so they were, they were taking women at the the entrance to the tabernacle, which we looked at last week, and they were they were a mess. So they had a superstitious fascination, fascination. They had a superstitious fascination with the Ark of the Covenant, and they thought, "I know the Philistines are attacking us. We're at war with the Philistines. Let's take the Ark." And we'll take it into battle because then, (laughs) you know, then we know that we can prevail because that ark is special. So they decide to weaponize the ark. And the result, 1 Samuel 4, 10 and 11, we read, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel... 
30,000 foot soldiers and also the Ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That's the danger. Don't get your eyes off of the Lord. You get caught up in some of the flesh and the hype out there. It can be dangerous. By the way, their father Eli, the priest, he was sitting nervously waiting for the ark to return, sitting in a chair on the road. And the people came up and they said, hey, your sons have have died. Obviously, he would have been distressed about that. But what really got him was when they said the ark has been captured and he was so upset he fell out of his chair, broke his neck and died on the spot. So as we'll see, the superstitious practice of magic and sorcery was really, again, prevalent in Ephesus. Verse 14. And also there were the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. Who did what? Well, they were saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They were using this incantation. Now, I I wonder too, I think about, you know, you're reading about some of these guys with their quote, healing services. And, and it doesn't seem to you that, that like a lot of them, at least they used to, I don't know if they do it so much anymore, but it's like they all their sentences would end with, uh, you know, we heal you by the name of this Jesus, uh, you know, and, and, and I just, again, my goofy brain does this like, they were, yeah, they, yeah, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. <laughs> Here's the point. Skiva is a Greek name. It's not a Jewish name. Uh, it's very improbable that uh, he was an actual chief priest. Because in Judaism, that title was reserved for members of the Sanhedrin. The ruling council back in Israel, not out here in Ephesus, not out here in the back 40, uh, concerning Judaism anyway. And so, and I'm into interpretation. I mean, he could have been a chief priest, but I really doubt it because they were up to this weird stuff that it's number one, he's, he's got a Greek name. Number two, this is totally inconsistent with Judaism. And number three, He's got these seven sons and he's turning them loose to do all this spiritistic stuff in Ephesus. Highly suspect. And, and folks, I got to tell you, there are a lot of charlatans out there today. They would take and use a legitimate title for illegitimate means. Why do they do that? In order to promote their thing. And it, this is so common, in, in, especially in quote, religious circles, even in alleged Christian circles. I hear alleged pastors doing all kinds of all manner of goofy things out there. You got to be careful. You got to be really careful that what they're doing lines up with the word of God. Because if it doesn't, chances are it's a counterfeit. Because God does the, he, God will lay down the original. He'll lay down the real thing. And Satan is really good. He's really crafty at coming and laying down the counterfeit right alongside it. And then using this glitch, using the flash, using the, the, the magpie thing to draw people in. Ooh, wow. Look at the method they're using. So it's true though that Ephesus was not, it wasn't just filled with false gods. Uh, as I mentioned, sorcery, witchcraft, and with those came demons and demonic possession. That's a thing. It's a real thing. And Paul had been traveling about Ephesus healing people, casting out demons. 
And these guys were seizing on his method as though that was where the power was. Adding that to their bag of tricks. Ah, we have the technique now. We've got it down. All we have to do is say this this line. Verse 15. <laughs> and, and the evil spirit answered and said, I love this. This is the part that gets for me. This is kind of hilarious. <laughs> the evil spirit inside of this guy that they're trying to exercise. He answers and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? <laughs> I've been reading this for years, folks, and every time I read it, I just start to laugh. I just think, so much for this guy's ego. <laughs> Your name again is what? <laughs> but there's interesting, when you look at the original language in this, there's an interesting play on words going on here that's not readily evident, but I'll show it to you. When the evil spirit says, Jesus, I know... The word know there is the Greek word gnosko. And that's an experiential knowledge. When he says, Paul I know, the word is not gnosko, it's epistemi. And uh, that's a whole different meaning. So literally what this malevolent spirit is saying, this Jesus I know experientially, and with this Paul, I'm acquainted. But as for you, you don't belong to either Jesus or Paul. So who are you? And, and, and that's really what's being said. Uh, this this demonic presence, they, you know, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, and I am, and I'm acquainted with Paul. He's going around, you know, kind of disturbing things in, in our realm. <laughs> but I don't know who you are. Folks, this is a very clear illustration of what spiritual authority is. You hear people talk, you've got to have authority. Take authority over that. There is a spiritual authority that comes to God's people. We do have authority. We looked at it recently in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus there at Caesarea Philippi, he gives his men the keys to the kingdom. In doing so, he gave them as stewards of the things of God, the ability to transact kingdom business on his behalf. Remember, I talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. And that's what Paul is doing here. He is transacting kingdom business on Jesus' behalf. That's why he is casting these things out in the name of Jesus. These guys are coming along the side. They're trying to do the same thing, but they don't have a relationship. So this evil spirit's challenging the authority of these so-called exorcists. He finds them lacking. (laughs) Who are you? And and it's not going to go well for them. Verse 16, then the man with whom the evil spirit was, the man in whom the evil spirit was, leaped on them overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. (laughs) These guys get shredded by this demon-possessed man. And no, we are not going to have a slide to show you. (laughs) They run out of there naked. I mean, they literally had their clothes shredded off of them. This must have been a violent, violent attack. I mean, I read it and I laugh in some ways because it's like, yeah, our side wins. But then think about if you were there, think about the, these seven sons of Sceva. They thought that they were just going to do what they've been doing and, you know, had this nice little incantation because this guy Paul's doing it and he look at his success. It's working. And, and this, this demon just flips out on them. Seriously, though, spiritual warfare is very real. And demonic forces are indeed powerful. You got to keep that in mind. 
You try to take them on in the arm of the flesh and it'll be a losing battle every time. And that's what these guys are doing. This scene graphically proves that out. Why? Because these men had no relationship with Jesus. You don't have to get a Bible college degree to understand spiritual authority. You have to belong to Jesus. You have to belong to the king. You have to be doing his work. You have to be doing his bidding. When you're not, and you're out there on your own, you're fair game. They didn't, so they didn't have any relationship with Jesus. Therefore, they had no real power uh, against this evil spirit. Now, the power that we have is not power that comes from knowing about Jesus. They knew about Jesus. But the power that we have comes from knowing Jesus. It comes from having a relationship with him. It comes from being washed in the blood of the Lamb. It comes from the Spirit of God who can now come in because I am a cleansed vessel. These guys weren't cleansed vessels. They were charlatans. Huge difference. Again, just expanding on this for a minute. Pastors worry at times about the flock. There are times where I worry, Lord, are are people, and I don't know the heart, All I can do is be faithful with what God's shown me to do and and fulfill my ministry. But there are times where I worry, it's like, Lord, are the people, do they understand Jesus because it's the Jesus the pastor told them about? Or do they have a relationship with you themselves? And that's a question all of us must answer because it's, it's personal. It's about having a personal relationship with Christ. Again, God doesn't have grandchildren. You don't inherit that from someone else. You don't, standing, being in a church makes you a Christian as much as standing in a garage makes you a car. Uh, It has to be personal. There has to be a relationship that's intact and in place and that's alive. These guys didn't have it. They paid. Paul did. He prevailed. Verse 17, he says, This became known to both all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I love that. The word magnified is like a picture of magnifying glasses. Like the name of Jesus is like being enlarged. So for these spiritistic and superstitious Ephesians, this was a turning point. God is using this. He's using the folly of these men to, get, to, to gain attention and, and to promote the kingdom of God in this huge city. Like I said, it's a city of about 250,000 people. This is all the Jew, Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. That's a bunch. That's a lot of people. Holy Spirit begins to be poured out. So the interesting thing is until now, the people in general, they had believed in the supernatural. I mean, that was their way of life. But they hadn't fully understand the demonic power behind it or their part in it. And they were, they were really participating in the powers of darkness, whether they recognized it or not. And this whole, this whole deal that happened with the sons of Sceva really illustrated that. Looking at Paul, and again, he's going around and demons are being cast out, people are being healed, the kingdom of God's being enlarged, it's being magnified, the name of Christ is being magnified, all of that. These guys go, they get shredded, they get beat up, they don't even have any clothes left by the time this demon's done with them, and they run out of there terrified. Word got out. So now having power over these forces, 
It was an entirely different matter. Uh, And that's why the name of Jesus was being magnified. They were seeing great success in these areas. And this is why Paul, what, it's what Paul's getting at. Years, again, years later, he writes back to the Ephesians. And he tells them that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This isn't a human battle. Even though that demon was inside of a man, he says, no, we wrestle against uh, principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in heavenly places. In 2 Corinthians 10, he says, you know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not, they're not in, in the material realm, but they're mighty in God for tearing down strongholds because they're spiritual weapons. He goes on to talk about the, the, where the battle really is, the battlefields in our minds. He says, therefore, take every thought captive before the throne of Christ, casting down all of the, the imaginations and the things that, that the enemy would try to lure us in. Again, looking at these guys getting caught up and looking at the method in which these things were done rather than looking at the master. I could go on, but I, for lack of time, we've got to make sure that we can wrap up and because uh, I would love to take this and expand on it to a whole study on spiritual warfare. Very important that we understand, though, that the weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons. They're spiritual and they come from being, they, they originate, and the power comes from being a child of the king. And if you're a child of the king, you have authority. It's a delegated authority, but it, you have authority. The Spirit's work would be evidenced by a deep conviction here, too, that we'll see, uh, which would, it would begin to grip the hearts uh, and uh, of the people as they turn to the Lord Jesus. In verse 18, he says, And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Uh, I think that's a powerful statement. Uh, The Bible tells us in Romans that if we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, that we shall be saved. So these guys are beginning to confess their sins. They're beginning to confess all of the areas where they had been just goofy in. And they're beginning to embrace Jesus as he is, not as they want him to be. And things are happening. Uh, Remember, huge city. And this entire culture had been immersed in the magical arts. As people turn to Christ and from these practices, they begin to unburden themselves. Uh, The fruit of repentance in thoughts, words, and deeds began to spread among them. Now, have you ever thought about that? Now, the basis of God's judgment, and this is the judgment that all of us would be subjected to were it not for, again, for the blood of Christ, which covers us, If you belong to Christ, this is not the judgment that you will receive. But the basis of his judgment is thoughts, words, and deeds. Things you think, things you say, things you do. And that is the basis of judgment. Now, when you come to Christ and he says, no, I paid for all of that. I paid for all of those wrong things. We call them sins. Things you said, things you did, things things you thought. And I, I, something I realized as preparing for this morning was that the fruit of repentance is the same stuff. Now, not, not the same, <laughs> not leading to judgment. But when somebody repents of sin, what does repent mean? It means to change your mind. It means to change your direction. And so now my thoughts, rather than being thoughts that are condemning me, my thoughts being consistent with being filled with the Holy Spirit, 
begin to magnify the Lord, begin to glorify him, begin to enlarge him in my life as I grow. My, the, the things I think, the things I say. I've said before that when people get serious about their relationship with, with the Lord, very often their vocabulary shrinks considerably. Because the things I say, I want to, I want to glorify God. I want Him to be glorified in my speech. The things I do, I don't want to be all messed up in the spiritistic, demonic stuff. And that's what's happening to the people in Ephesus. So the same basis, thoughts, words, and deeds, is that which judges you, but it's also those same things which begin to be transformed as I turn from the old life and I embrace the new life that comes in Christ. And that's exciting. Verse 19, and also many of those who had practiced magical magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So now it says that they're confessing and now they're doing. Again, repentance is, is, is producing a result here. And this is not a small result because it says, and they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So they're literally getting rid of the ungodly influence these books had represented in their lives. Evidently, the, the books, scrolls and all of that, uh, they had great value. Now, I started doing a study looking at, okay, well, so how much? Because <laughs> it's like, I want to know what's the bottom line? How much, you know, what was the value of this stuff? And there are, uh, uh, there's a, a wide difference in estimates. But I think it's pretty safe to say that it was, in, in today's currency, it would be somewhere between $1 million and $5 million worth of books. That's a lot of books. This is a big city. And there's a big outpouring of the Holy Spirit going on. Uh, so yeah, powerful, powerful move of God going on here. People repenting, people confessing their sin, people turning, people putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and, and great things going on in Ephesus. So in verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I like that. He summarizes the season of Paul's ministry at Ephesus uh, in the surrounding region by saying the word of the Lord was expanding to more and more people and growing more powerful. Uh, Christianity had, was taking hold. Remember, these are unevangelized areas prior to this. I mean, largely, there may have been some people, <clears throat> you know, for instance, that were there in the day of Pentecost that went home and started, you know, study groups or whatever. But by and large, this is this is the beginning of the church. And this is where the church would get a real foothold in these areas throughout the whole region of Asia through the work that was being done at Ephesus. So as we wrap up, I want to look at four things. I'll move through them quickly because we're almost out of time. The first is this. Are you bold? Are you? You don't have to answer me. But if you are, what kind of bold are you? As I mentioned, there's a difference. Carnal boldness is, wow, that person is bold. <laughs> oh yeah, buddy, want to take, make something of it? Come on, come on. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not. But then spiritual boldness, wow, that person's bold. And that's the, the person that says, you know what? In love, I need to tell you, unless you turn from your old life, from your sins, and embrace Jesus as Lord, you will die in your sins. That's a hard thing to say. And there's risk involved because there's a possibility that person is going to say, what kind of a nut are you? 
Because that's how the world looks at it. So are you bold? Are you bold in your witness? Are you bold in your speech? Are you bold in your lifestyle? Not just things you say. Boldness is important. But it's also important to not be bold in a carnal sense to where you know, you're going around thinking, well, yeah, and, and just calling people on the carpet all the time. That's not, that's not glorifying God at the least. The second thing is a principle here. Uh, and I think that it shows clearly in this passage is that godly sorrow leads to godly action. And it does. Is there unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life? You have any books to burn? Literally or figuratively, that's really what I'm talking about. Are there changes that you would make? Because God loves when we take action and we actually put feet to the message. And that's what these people in Ephesus were doing. They were saying, you know what? We believe that. And not only do we believe that, our actions, our confession and our actions are going to show it. Godly sorrow leads to godly action. I came across a quote by Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite guys to read. He says this, he says, you will have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. Is there any habit, any practice that you've got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come and trust in him, you will make short work of it, have done with it, and have done with it forever. This is a great exhortation for the church today. Uh, There are times where we drift. There are times where we allow things in our lives that really have no business being there. And I love what uh, a woman on our worship team said many years ago. It's a church in California where I was a pastor. And and we were praying before the service, much like we do here. and, And she was praising God that she said, you know, Lord, no matter how many steps away we can take from you, I love that it's only one step back. And that's repentance. That's turning. That's allowing my thoughts, my words, and my deeds to line up with the person in the work of Christ in my life. The third thing is, and this is interesting from the story, don't get caught up in the hype. Don't get caught up in the magpie thing. Remember, it's not about the method. And there's a lot of methods being promoted out there. You know, you see one guy, he takes his coat off and he throws it across and everybody in the room falls over. It's like, come on. Or you see somebody that, and I could just go on and start citing examples. I don't want to take the time, but you know what I mean. There's a shortage out there of men and women with fancy titles, big planes, flashy methods, claiming to be operating under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So the question then becomes, how do you know whether or not they are operating under the authority of the Holy Spirit? And the answer, I think, is clear from God's word. Jesus talks about this. He addresses it in John 16 when he speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 14, Jesus is he's in the middle of talking. He says, you know, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he'll lead you into all truth. It's the threefold ministry of the Spirit. The sin and righteousness is judgment. And he'll lead you into all truth. In other words, if you understand what's being said here this morning, it's not my job. It's, that's the Holy Spirit. He is leading you into truth. And he says in verse 14, he will glorify me. For he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. What do you mean? What does it mean for him to glorify the Holy Spirit, to glorify Christ? 
When Jesus says he'll glorify me, he's stating that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will illuminate Jesus to the hearts and minds of his people. Very simple. In other words, the Spirit's work will look like Jesus. How often is that the case? How often do you see that that's not the case? So here's a litmus test. Here's a rhetorical question. In this morning's text, whose work looked like or glorified Jesus? The Apostle Paul? Or the seven sons of Sceva. I mean, it's pretty, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out. One did, one very clearly did not. So don't get caught up in the hype. And that's not to say that God doesn't do some pretty spectacular things at times either. I want to be fair about that. But you got to be sure that it lines up with the word of God. You got to be sure that, that the person who's behind it that yeah, whether they've got some imaginary title or they've really earned the title or the not earned, I should say the better way to say that is that that title was conveyed by God. You know, people that claim titles that were not conveyed by God and that's dangerous. Don't get caught up in it. The fourth thing, and this is uh, for a few, I don't know if there's anybody here or somebody maybe online that's watching, but do you know about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? Big difference. To know about Jesus would be to, well, you hear people say things, well, like my God would never fill in the blank. Or, well, you know, and they'll quote something that's been misquoted for ages. Judge not, judge not. (laughs) I won't even go there. Okay, a little bit. Um, That means criticize not. There's a lot of deists out there. A great deal of what gets promoted as Christianity is really um, therapeutic, moralistic deism. And it's not Christianity. Very slick, very well packaged. Marketing guys are having a ball. But what it does, it leads people to know about Jesus. And that puts people in a very, very dangerous place. Because it's about knowing him. It's about understanding that he went to that cross for me. It's about understanding that when his blood was poured out, that that was for my sins. These people in Ephesus understood that. They were like, wow, that was for me. I need to get rid of these books. I need to confess my sins. I need to be able to be right with God. That hasn't changed. So do you know about Jesus or do you have a personal relationship with him? And that's a question that I can ask but I can't answer it for you. I can answer it for me. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, as, as we race through this passage this morning, I just uh, I pray, Father. I know that, that you've got something for each person here, each person within the sound of my voice, whether it's in this room or online or in our archives later or whatever, Father. Just pray that you would take this Take your word, drive it into the hearts of your people and produce a change. Lord, produce a people that are conscious of their thoughts, their words and their deeds and that act in a manner that's consistent with a repentant lifestyle, a lifestyle that's consistent with being your child, being your, your, a citizen of heaven, having the authority that you've given us. And so, Father, we, uh, we just commit ourselves afresh into your hands, into your care. Pray that you would work in us, 
that you would just do amazing things in our lives. As we leave here today, Father, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that we could stand against the schemes of the enemy that are out there and and that, that hit us daily sometimes. We love you. We praise you this morning. We pray that you would fill us up and that we would go out of here a little bit more conformed to the image of your son. That's our desire. We give you ourselves freshly and freely in Jesus' name. Amen.